basically one verse today that I didn't get to last time, and uh, for good reason, there's a lot here. Um, have you ever heard the saying that ideas have consequences? I think, it's, I think that was popularized because a book was written um, by that title in the 20th century at one point. But ideas have consequences. And um, I think we understand what that means. Ideas, if they don't just remain ideas, but they are followed through with and carried out to their logical conclusion, have consequences, have serious consequences. If a man is indo- has been indoctrinated in the school of secular social Dar- Darwinism his entire life and thinks he's nothing more than a creature that evolved from an ape and basically is a a bag of fizzing chemicals, it's going to affect how that person thinks and lives. Would you agree with that? It's going to have consequences for that person. But if that same man then comes to the realization that he is created by God, an image bearer of God, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, and is a child of God, and then therefore an heir of God, that too will have far-reaching and significant and powerful consequences for that man, right? Well, today we're going to take a look at um, one verse that has an idea, more than just an idea, of course, because it's God's Word. This is divine truth, but an idea that is powerful and can have a huge impact on our life, really should have a huge impact on our lives, And we need to understand something right up front, okay? I don't know if you guys noticed this, but we are in a battle for souls, in a battle battle of discipleship, right? I thought about this earlier in this week. Everybody is being discipled. Your kids are. uh, If you have grandkids, your grandkids. And you are. The question is, who's discipling us? And what what are we being discipled to? So we have divine truth. When we open up God's word, we are looking at divine truth. And today we're going to look at a truth that has significant consequences. Ideas have consequences. So we're going to look at one verse, like I said. And we're going to look at this one verse because I didn't, well, for one reason I didn't get to it last time, but also because it's kind of a hinge verse in the book of, excuse me, the chapter of Romans 8. So we're going to look at verse 17. Primarily, we're going we're gonna to touch on verse 16 at the end and just see how these two things connect. But we're going to focus primarily on verse 17. And so what we've been looking at in Romans 8 so far is truth that already belongs, truth of what already belongs to us in Christ. The salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ. So if you remember way back, way back, 16 verses, to verse 1, what did we look at? There is therefore... Now, no condemnation, right? Now there's no condemnation. That's not something that that we're waiting for. There's no condemnation now. We also looked at how we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us now. And we are children of God now. Now, as we move on in Romans Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 26, we're going to look at something that I think is really important for us to see next time. We're going to look at how Uh, at why the world is the way that it is. It's messed up, right? We see that. We understand that. It's corrupt. It's fallen. uh, Romans 8 uses the language of it's groaning. It's longing for something. We, We sense that. We feel that. We ourselves experience that as well. 
And so we have earlier in Romans 8 what we, the, the salvation we possess. We're going to look forward to what, why the world is the way that it is and what we're looking forward to. And verse 17 is kind of this hinge verse that, uh, that points us in that direction, what we're looking forward to. And it has to do with inheritance. It has to do with inheritance. And inheritance is something that we have not, that, that you don't take full possession of until the future, right? It's something that is out in front of you. It's something that we have not yet taken full possession of. And so right now, we kind of live in this tension of what already is and what is not yet. Have you ever heard of that, that phrase before, the already and not yet? Sometimes it's used in relation to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here, right? Jesus came, and Mark chapter 1 says that Jesus began preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. So the kingdom is here, and yet we understand that it's not fully here yet. And this is kind of like that. We have salvation. It's come to us through Christ, the indwelling spirit, no condemnation, all of that, forgiveness of sins, and yet there's still salvation out in front of us to be experienced that is not yet. That's our inheritance. That's out in front of us. So let me read these verses again, and then I, wanna, I just want to draw out five things we're going to look at in relation to our inheritance and then unpack each one of them, okay? So here's Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. That's that word, okay, related to inheritance. Heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we see five things related to our inheritance. One, we see that children are heirs. And I want to put it this way. All of God's children are heirs. Okay, every one of them. Second, we see what the inheritance actually is. What is this inheritance we get? It's not something we can just dream up what we want. What is it that we receive as an inheritance? Third, what is the basis of this inheritance? How can we be assured that it's for us? Fourth, what is the pathway to this inheritance? And fifth, we see that there is a present down payment of this future inheritance now. Okay? So let's just look at each one of these one at a time. First, all of God's children are heirs. Okay, every one of them. Here's what it says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Okay? You see that if-then statement. If you're a child, then you're an heir. Okay? If you're a child, then you, are, you have this inheritance. And we could go back further. We could say, if you have received the spirit of adoption, by whom you cry, Abba, Father, then you are a child. And if you're a child, then you are an heir. It's this airtight connection. If you receive the Spirit, you're a child. If you're a child, you are an heir. There are no children of God who are not heirs, who who, who will not receive a future inheritance. Now, this ought to do two things for us. On the one hand, it ought to rid us of pride and striving, thinking that we need to attain to the super high spiritual level as super Christians, or thinking that we have 
in order to attain this inheritance. But on the other hand, it ought to rid us of despair and discouragement because we're not sure that we have attained that super high level of, you know, the super Christian. All of God's children are heirs. If you are a child, you're an heir. None of God's children are going to be left out. My sister's not here this morning, so I can say this, but there are no, she's a redhead, okay? There are no redheaded stepchildren in God's family that are kind of left out. You ever heard that saying before? Okay. Um, I don't even know where that came from, but there are none of them, okay? There are none of, none of, the, none of God's children are kind of on the margins or left out looking in the windows, wondering if they can come in. All of God's children are invited as heirs of this glorious inheritance. Think about it. Every child of God has been ransomed by the same blood of Christ. Every single one of them. Every child of God is currently indwelt by the same spirit of adoption. Now, of course, there are varying degrees of maturity among God's children. That's clear, no doubt, right? We ought to be striving for to grow in maturity, and I think there's a, there's a sense in which our usefulness to God and in his kingdom is related to our attainment of maturity. So we ought to be striving for that. But when it comes to this inheritance, there is not one single child of God that is left out of God's will. Every child is an heir. If you're a child, you are an heir. It has nothing to do with gifts or callings. It does not say if you're a gifted preacher, then you're an heir. Or if you are an effective evangelist, then you're an heir. If you're a possessor of great prophetic powers or giftings, you're an heir. It doesn't say if you're an angelic singer or a beautiful musician, then you're an heir. Or a possessor of beauty or success or anything like that. No, every single child is an heir. Nor is it dependent upon our diligent labors and spiritual exercises, whether it be length of prayer times or passion in worship or zeal in evangelism or busyness in service for God or diligence in Bible study. If you didn't have quiet time yesterday or this morning or if you don't tomorrow, God doesn't want you wondering whether or not you're an heir. All right, I'm being serious. He doesn't want you wondering. If you're a child, you're an heir. If you're born into God's family, you have this inheritance. Now listen to what Peter says as he lays this truth out for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So you see that same connection. We've been born again to a living hope into God's family. And because we're born again into God's family, we have this future inheritance that is secure for us. It's kept for us. It's kept in heaven for us. So, we need to know. I want everyone here to know if you are in Christ, when you leave today, you know you're an heir. You are part of this inheritance. It belongs to you. You have a claim on it.
So what is the inheritance? Right? What is the inheritance? We've talked about being an heir. What is it? Well, here's what Paul says. If children, then heirs, heirs of God. Heirs of God. Now, we need to pay close attention here, I think. This, we could just read right over this. And maybe you've thought about this before and just or read through this and breezed over it, but we need to give our attention to what God says here. This is a glorious truth. But it's kind of a strange statement to be heirs of God. Usually we think of being heirs of some kind of estate, possessions, money, something like that, a house, whatever. Not heirs of the owner of those things himself. So what does it mean to be an heir of God? Well, I'm going to come back to the central truth in a moment, but I do think it means being heirs of all that God owns, which is astounding. What does God own? Stretch your hand from the west to the east and from the north to the south, and as far as you can imagine, in every direction, God is the owner of all of it. It all belongs to him. Right? Suppose you're the sole heir of a distant uncle's estate, and he leaves you this estate, and the, the estate consists of one small two-bedroom home you know, on the beach in Florida, or if you're a mountain person, in the Colorado Rockies somewhere, okay? And that's what you have. That's what you get from the uncle. You could drive to that house. You could say, that's, that's my inheritance right there. When it comes to God and all that he owns and all that is his and all that we are set to inherit, it is impossible to imagine all that is his. But it's all his. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him, and you and I are heirs. Now you might think, wait a second. We get the earth? Now you might, <laughs> now, the earth now, it's like, eh, I don't know if I want it. Okay, it's pretty messed up. It's going to be better. <laughs> when Jesus comes, it's, wait till next time, okay? Romans 8, 20, 18 to 26. We're going to see what happens. It's going to be renovated. It's going to be renewed. Okay, all of that. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 5. This is part of the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. You know how it ends? For they shall inherit the earth. So how great is the sum of all that God owns? It is incalculable. We think about the earth, but what about the galaxies? What about the, tr- the billions of galaxies and the trillions of stars and so forth? All of it God owns, and we are heirs of it all. And yet, as great as that is, it's only part of the meaning of these words, heirs of God. And it's not the main part. It's not the, it's not the real treasure of what this means. Because the Apostle Paul says that God himself, not just what he owns, but God himself belongs to us. It is God himself who belongs to us. We inherit God. Listen to what David said in Psalm 16. He said, the Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is the inheritance? The Lord, he said, is my portion. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The lines have fallen in beautiful places. I have a glorious inheritance. I guess I changed some of those words around, but you get the point. We have this, David thought he had a beautiful inheritance because his portion was the Lord himself. The Lord is our portion. He is our, in our, our inheritance. He himself belongs to us. Of all the billions of galaxies and all the trillions of stars and all that God has made, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what he could make. And all that he could make is a drop in the bucket compared to who he is. The Psalms say the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain our God. And we are heirs of God. Here's what God says in Revelation. He says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. Now we rightly humble ourselves before God. It's good to do this. We rightly humble ourselves before God and say, God, I am yours. I belong to you. You are Lord. You are master. I'm yours right? Do, do with me what you will. That's, that's a good thing to do. You possess me. You own me. And he does. And we don't, it's obviously not in the same way, but God says to us, I am yours. I'm yours. And we can say, God, you are mine. Song of Solomon, there's this beautiful line where It says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. And we may say that to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his, and he is ours. John Piper wrote a book entitled God is the Gospel, which is a great book, by the way. Um, And in the opening opening, uh, introduction of the book, he goes to this anecdotal example He said, if you could have everything, okay, if heaven was perfect health and perfect wealth and you walked on streets of gold and you had this mansion prepared for you and the best of foods and all the kinds of, maybe you'd say on the new earth, I suppose, maybe not up in heaven, but um, you had all the kinds of activities that you would love to do, all of it, everything that you could imagine and forgiveness of sins and all of that as well. But God wasn't there. Would it be heaven? It's kind of a gut check, isn't it? What is the treasure that we long for? What is our inheritance? It is those things. But supremely, it's God himself. Here's what John Piper said. I I couldn't find the quote, but I think this is a pretty close quote. He said something like this. The greatest gift of the gospel is that God gives us himself. Only when we we receive him as our highest treasure will we truly know the beauty of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished. Only when we receive Christ or God himself as our highest treasure, above all the gifts that he gives us, way above all the gifts that he gives us, and all the other things we inherit, only when we see him as the highest treasure Do we truly know the beauty of all that Jesus 
Christ has accomplished through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his second coming in the future. We are heirs of God. This inheritance, I think, seems, I don't know, maybe, maybe this, I hope this is landing on you like it did, hopefully even more than it landed on me this week. It's astounding. It's utterly astounding. And you might wonder, how can this be true? Well, it's not because we're good. Because in and of ourselves, we're not. It's not because we've been good little children to God. And he's giving us this reward that we deserve. It's not because God has seen some extraordinary value in us. The basis of our inheritance is one thing and one thing only. It's because we've been united to Jesus Christ. And he's the one that deserves it. And we get it because we're in him. And I get that from this little phrase, fellow heirs with Christ. We are heirs because we're children. We're heirs of God. And we're fellow heirs with Christ. Let me just read from verse 16 to that little phrase. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We participate in being an heir with him. Jesus Christ, as the firstborn son, right? The only begotten son is the only one who deserves the inheritance. You and I don't. Yeah, I've struggled with this too, don't get me wrong, but I, I can't number the, the amount of times I've heard people say, I just don't feel like I'm worthy before God. And it's almost like what they, they think they need to hear is, oh yes, you really are. When that's not what they need to hear. It's like, of course you're not. The question is, are you in Christ? He's worthy. And if you're in him, you get all that he gets. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus Christ brings us into this inheritance. The word translated fellow heir. Maybe your translation says co-heir or uh, joint heir or something like that. Same thing. It's used only four times in the New Testament. And it means to participate in something with someone else. So in Ephesians 3.6, it's used there. It says that we are to, we're, we're told that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, excuse me, Gentile Christians are fellow heirs with Jewish believers. They're members of the same body, They're partakers of the same promises in Christ. Okay, Gentiles and Jews together. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says that wives are heirs with their husbands of the grace of life. It's not saying unmarried women aren't. It's just, it's talking about husbands and wives, okay? So it's saying wives are joint heirs with their husbands of the grace of life. So together, one with the other. Hebrews 11.9 is another place, is the other place, the only other place this word is used. And it says that Abraham went to live in the land of promise with Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So in each of these cases, in one sense it's equals. 
that are enjoying these promises and blessings together, right? Jewish believers and Gentile believers are equals in the sense that they're purchased by the blood of Jesus and are members of the same body and partakers of the promises together. Husbands and wives are equals. That's why some translations say they're equal heirs of the grace of life. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at least on a human level, I mean, Abraham's, right, he's the the patriarch, I suppose, but they're equal in the sense that they're image bearers of God and they equally share in the promised land. And our text says that we are fellow heirs with Christ, but we are not equal to Christ. And yet, we are brought in to share in the inheritance of, with Christ that he himself deserves. We are brought in to share. And this reminds me of just the glorious truth of the gospel. It's called, some, some theologians call it the great, the, the great exchange, the substitutionary work of Christ. He took what we deserved so that we get what he deserves. He took what we, de- what we deserved. He took our sin, our condemnation, the wrath of God in our place on the cross. We get what he deserves, which is, Adoption into a family, righteousness, grace, eternal life, and an inheritance. Last week we looked at how we have received the spirit of adoption. And it's by the spirit that we echo the words of Jesus and cry, Abba, Father. Remember, Jesus is the only person we actually hear saying those words, addressing them to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. In adoption, Jesus shares with us his status as son. We are united to Christ. He shares his status as son with us. We are treated treated eternally as well as Christ himself is. We are loved with the same love that the Father loves the Son. And here, here we see how this carries over into inheritance. It's ours because of him and the fact that we are united to him. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7 is, is almost exactly the same as Romans 8, 15 to 17. It's, it's a parallel passage. It's so clear. Paul's, right, this is part and parcel of Paul's theology. He says this in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then it says this, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So you've been redeemed, you've been adopted, you have received the spirit of sonship, you cry, Abba, Father, you are an heir, and it's all because you've been united to Jesus Christ by faith. Sometime, do this activity. Just, just do this sometime, all right? Read through all of Paul's letters and make a special note of how many times Paul refers to a Christian as a man or woman in Christ or in him or in Christ Jesus or, 
whatever. I mean, it, there's, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of times he does. You and I need to begin thinking of ourselves as men, women, children in Christ, fellow heirs with Christ. Charles Spurgeon, taken up with this truth in a message he preached on Romans 8, 17, said this. He said, this, beloved, seems to me to be the sweetest part of all of the inheritance. Once let me know that I am one with Christ and so have become an heir with him and it is like heaven below to my soul. Amen? Let me read that again. I've been praying for that, that this, would, that this would actually come down and land upon us, okay? This, beloved, seems to be the sweetest part of the inheritance. Let me know. This is like him praying to God. Let me know that I am one with Christ and so have become a fellow heir with him. And it is like heaven below to my soul. We are joint heirs with Christ. That's the basis of our inheritance. What's the pathway to this inheritance? What's the road we're to walk on? We are fellow heirs with Christ. We just talked about that. But like Christ, the path to glory is not one of flowery beds of ease. But the Calvary Road. The pathway to this inheritance, brothers and sisters, is one of, it's not only this, but it is this. It's one of suffering. It's one of difficulty. It's one of trials. Listen to what Paul says. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're called to share not only in the, inher- in the inheritance with Christ, we are called to share in that, but we are also called to share in his suffering as well. There's no crown without a cross. Now, some, I think wrongly, want to limit when Paul talks about suffering here, want to limit it to only to outright persecution, like a gun to your head, deny Jesus, or I'm going to kill you, or you're going to be put in prison, or I'm going to punch you in the face, or something like that, okay? Or you're preaching the gospel and somebody threatens you, and they want to limit this suffering only to that. I think that's wrong. We're going to see as we move on through Romans 8 further that because we live in the world that actually exists and not some make-believe world, we experience suffering and difficulty as part of that. Paul says all of creation groans and we ourselves groan because we live in these bodies that are, well, I'm 45 now and I'm not, you know, I I was playing basketball with some young guys yesterday and I just, you know, I don't move quite as well, okay? And my back is sore today and that's just the beginning of it. Okay. So I think the suffering here is more than just hostility from other people and persecution 
for the gospel and persecution for preaching the gospel and so forth. I think it, it certainly includes that, but it's more than just that. J.C. Ryle explains this way. He said, all of the children of God have to carry a cross. They have trials and troubles and afflictions to go through for the gospel's sake. They have trials from the world, trials from the flesh, and trials from the devil. They have sharp trials from relations and friends. Sometimes hard words, hard treatment, and hard judgment. Have you ever experienced that? Probably all of us have. They have trials in the, manner of, in the matter of character. They're slandered, misrepresented, mocked. Insinuation of false, false motives. All of these often rain thick upon them. They have trials in the matter of worldly interests. They often have to choose whether they will please man and lose glory or please God. Excuse me. They often have to choose whether they will please man and lose glory or gain glory and offend man. They have trials from their own hearts. They have each generally their own thorn in the flesh, who is their worst foe. This is the experience of the sons of God. And I think it's precisely on, at this point, when we talk about being children of God and heirs, that some people make the error of saying, well, hey, we're children of the king. We don't have to suffer. Life should be, right, just a breeze. Because, hey, we're, we're the king's kids or something like that. But it's precisely because we're the king's kids that he has us on this path. That we are called to suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. In other words, the result of this pathway of suffering is glory. Sometimes people think something strange is happening when they suffer difficulty and trials. Not so. We have trials of all kinds. James chapter 1. We have trials. We're to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. And I, I take that to mean we have big trials and small trials. We have trials that afflict our bodies and we have trials that afflict our minds and our hearts and affections and emotions. And it comes from people that are close to us and people that are... And we have trials of various kinds. <clears throat> and it's in part because we are God's children and this is the path our Father's chosen for us. This is the training ground for glory. But I do want to go back to the idea of persecution just for a moment because I do think the days of being able to fly under the radar as Christians, you know, we live in a, at least when I was growing up, you know, when I was younger, you might say, aren't you still growing up? I am still growing up. But when I was much younger, it seemed like, hey, but everyone's Christian, right? Pretty much. Said they were anyways. Well, things are changing in our society. I think you probably recognize that. And I think the days of kind of flying under the radar and just being able to mind our own business and, you know, and worship God and do our thing, and I think those days are numbered. I think to live faithfully as a, as a follower of Christ and to speak faithfully as a follower of Christ. And I don't mean to be rude about it. I don't mean to be a jerk, but just to speak God's truth and seek to live faithfully. 
um, is going to lead to scorn and hostility from the world. I mean, you already see that somewhat, and maybe we have experienced that to some degree, but I think only more and more. Oh, you're a Christian, huh? And unless you preface it with, well, yeah, I'm one of those progressive Christians. Which, God help them, but they're not. They're progressing somewhere, but it's not anywhere good. Unless you say that, you're going to be called narrow-minded or a bigot or a hater or a misogynist or a racist or a homophobe or a transphobe or whatever. And we don't want any of those things to actually be true about us. Right? We, don't, we really don't want to be a hater or a bigot, or, but we're probably going to be called those things. We just need to settle in our minds now that this is the path we're called to walk on as fellow heirs with Christ. As we seek to live faithfully and speak faithfully as Christians. The pathway to glory is riddled with hardships, trials, difficulties, small and big. Well, we've looked at the fact that all God's children are heirs. We've seen that this inheritance is supremely God himself, but also all that he owns. We've seen that the basis of the inheritance is that we're united to Christ, we're fellow heirs with Christ. We've seen that the pathway to this inheritance is one of difficulty and trial and suffering. Jesus said the narrow road is one of hard, that's hard. Um, I want to talk about the down payment of this inheritance. Because I think at this point we could say, well, is the, is the inheritance all future and only the future and all we can expect in this life is difficulty and trials? Well, no. That's not the case. The inheritance is future. We're going to take full possession of it in the future, no doubt. It's something we look forward to. But we also have a down payment now. The New Testament uses the language of guarantee. Paul doesn't hear Romans 8, but I think the same idea is brought out here. The, 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 the word guarantee, which can be translated down payment, something that is given ahead of time in lieu of the full inheritance. And it's not a small, it's not a small down payment. It's not like, you know, 1% on the house or something or whatever. It's a, it's, a, it's a significant down payment because it's the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit laid out, is, excuse me, the Holy Spirit as down payment is laid out in several places in the New Testament and we see it here in Romans 8, 16 and 17. The way 16 goes into 17, I think it's clear. It says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of, of God and if children heirs and so forth. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit gives us a deep and profound witness, testimony, not just to our brains, but to our spirits deep within, that we're God's children. And if you're a child, remember, remember the logic, right? If you're a child, you're a what? You're an heir. You have that inheritance in the future. 
But you also have the witness now. The deep and profound witness of the Spirit in us. And what is this witness? Well, I would argue it is a foretaste. Right? If we are heirs of God, if that is the supreme inheritance that we receive, the supreme portion is God himself. And he's given us himself by his Spirit to dwell within us then the Spirit abiding within us is a foretaste of the future inheritance that's to be ours. It's a down payment. Ephesians uh, 1.14 says that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our, and you could say down payment, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see that? You hear that there? He's the guarantee of our future inheritance until we acquire possession of that full inheritance. And what I love about the language and the truth of the, the Holy Spirit being a guarantee or down payment is, though it certainly points us forward to the full measure of what we're going to receive when Christ returns, it also drives home the point that we have now, through the Spirit, a real and living foretaste of what's to come. Amen? He bears witness that we're children. If we're children, then we know that we're full heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and as we endure hardships, it doesn't sink us. Even when it feels crushing. It doesn't destroy us. We're bearing the cross as we wait for the crown of glory and the Spirit bears witness to us in our hearts that we are God's children, excuse me, in our spirits. Well, I started with the idea that ideas have consequences and we understand that what we've been looking at, of course, is not just man's idea. I hope you see that. It's from God's word. So it's divine truth But let me ask you, do you think this idea of being heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, with the down payment of the Holy Spirit abiding within us, bearing witness to us that we're God's children, do you think this truth ought to have far-reaching consequences in our life? Do you? I think it should. And this could be a whole other message. You guys got like another hour? I'm joking. I'm joking. Okay. Um, Let me just give you a couple that I think are without question. What effect should this have on our lives? Here's one. It should give us an eagerness to live as a true child of the King of Kings in holiness, in obedience, and integrity, okay? To live a life that doesn't say, well, I'm a Christian, so I better do these things, or I have to do these things. But no, I'm a child of God, a full heir of this inheritance. I get to do these things. I get to live for the glory of my Father. If we had this truth just branded on our minds and hearts and spirits, we would be all the more eager to glorify our Father, advancing his kingdom and purposes wherever we can. 
Amen? Here's the second thing, okay? This truth ought to produce in us humility and hope and endurance through suffering, through trials. Are you facing trials right now? Are you, are you like eyeball deep in one now? This ought to help you to face it with humility and with hope and with endurance. When we suffer for Christ's sake, bearing the reproach of Jesus Christ, we can even wear it as a badge of honor. When we suffer reproach for Christ's sake, we can even wear it as a badge of honor. I think of the disciples in Acts chapter 5. Uh, they were brought in again to the Sanhedrin and they were told again, you stop preaching about the resurrection and Jesus Christ. And Peter said, how can we stop speaking of the things we've seen and heard? We must obey God rather than men. And so they were brought in, I don't know where they were brought, but they were, they were beaten with rods and they were sent on their way. And it says the disciples went down the road pouting and complaining about how hard life was. No, it doesn't say that. Some of you were like, no, wait a second, no, it doesn't say that. It says they went on rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Wow, that's amazing. They, they counted, they're like, wow, what a blessing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Well, they had walked with Jesus they heard him say, whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. They heard Jesus say, blessed are you when you suffer reproach and difficulty for my name's sake. Dance and leap for joy, and they did. And we had the same promise, inheritance. We have the same spirit who dwells within us. The pathway of difficulty is the pathway to glory. Paul says in the next verse, verse 18, which we'll talk about next time, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So it's not, it's just like, oh, don't even tell me about your difficulty. Just wait till you, just wait till we get to glory. The future inheritance is glorious beyond measure. And remember, the Spirit gives us a foretaste. And so we press on through difficulty and joy and humility and hope and perseverance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to do just that. Father, I ask now as we uh, Think about these things and as these things are rolling around in minds and hopefully the effects of them in people's hearts and their affections and I pray that these truths really would have far-reaching consequences in the lives of every soul here, every person here.